So the task force is charged with making evidence-based prevention recommendations for people from birth to death in the U.S. And the mission is really to improve the health and reduce mortality for all persons in our nation. And so it has a very global mandate. Thanks for tuning into the Live Well podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Wendy Slusser. Today's episode is incredibly informative about how recommendations and policies get developed in the world of health promotion. Our guest today, Dr. Carol Mangione, is the immediate past chair of the United States Preventive Services Task Force. She's the Distinguished Professor of Medicine and Public Health at UCLA, the Executive Vice Chair for Health Equity and Health Services Research in the Department of Medicine, a mentor, a mother, and much more. Today, she walks us through the world of the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force and how pivotal recommendations at all levels are made nationwide, how the task force members are selected, and the importance of building trust and expanding the diversity of people to include in research studies. So let's get into it. Enjoy this highly informative episode with Dr. Carol Mangione. So welcome, Dr. Carol Mangione. I'm so honored to have you on this podcast. Dr. Mangione is the past appointed chair of the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force is the chief of the Division of General Internal Medicine and Health Services Research at UCLA, and is a caring physician, friend, and mother. Carol has authored more than 350 research articles focused on a wide range of topics, including diabetes prevention, health disparities, aging, health insurance benefit design, and public health policy. Her research and translation to practice has helped improve the health not only of individual patients, but positively impacted the health of large populations through identifying best practices and translating them to policymakers, public health officials, and medical practitioners. We are so lucky to have you on this podcast, Dr. Mangione, and I'm going to call you Carol moving forward. There's so much to focus on and ask, but uh, maybe today we'll focus more on your United States Preventive Task Force role before we get to that, I'd like the listeners to hear what brought you to the medical field and what keeps you motivated to stay and show up every day in all of those capacities that you fill. Well, first of all, Wendy, thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity to speak to your audience. You really have brought so much to our campus here at UCLA and changed the culture and the focus so much more toward wellness, which is a key component to diabetes prevention. So I think early on, as you were changing the culture on the campus, it made it in many respects more receptive to the kind of research and thinking that I was doing to try to prevent chronic diseases and to keep people as healthy as possible as they age. So, so it's really such a pleasure to talk to you. So I've given some thought to your question, and there's really two ways to answer it. One would be the quick answer, which was that I never was a good enough musician to have a career in music, so I had to find something to do. But I'll give you a little more detailed of an answer. And, and that's really a lot of why I was attracted to medicine is really because of my mom. If my mother instilled anything into her children, it was that we better make a difference in the world with whatever we do. 
and that we should also really keep an eye on those who are less fortunate than us and who are being left out of the system in so many ways in terms of health, wellness, economic opportunity. And then being somebody who always was um, very attracted to science, scientific thinking, really the, the miracle of how genetics works. It was a perfect meld for me to think about going to medical school and being a physician because it was a kind of career where early on I felt like I could make a difference and I could leverage my own passions in science. And then you know, I think from a very early time in my residency training and research training, there always was this tension between loving being a doctor and making a difference for the person in front of me. You know, and it's a very little short feedback loop when you have a patient come to you with a serious problem and you have the chance to help sort it out, to be the detective and to get them on the right treatment versus having larger public health impact. To me, seeing the patients is a sort of like being a sprinter and making a larger public health difference is really like running a marathon. And and what I found in my career is that I really like both. And UCLA has provided me with the opportunity to do both. And so it's easy to come to work every day because I absolutely love my job. And I I can't say that I love patient care more than influencing policy. I really just love them both. But there's a third leg on the stool. And that's that in my current job, I also get to play a pretty big role in shaping and developing the next generation of physician scientists who do public health research. You know, an early mentor of mine, you know, said, when you're an apple tree, your greatest productivity will be all the apples you produce and help move along. And, you know, that's very much how my career has been. When I look at the faculty in my division, it's just such a privilege to work with them, to try to make this bureaucratic public university work for them, uh, and to watch them grow and develop in their careers and to see their collective impact. So I don't have any trouble coming to work every day. It's really uh, just uh, an incredible opportunity. Wow. That's a great summary of, for somebody who's looking towards making a difference in the world and various focuses, an individual population and then being a mentor. I've had the benefit of being around so many people that you've mentored. And one of them was um, someone we interviewed for this podcast, Dr. Tanaz Moyne. And over the years, this kind of ripple effect that you've had in your profession has just been tremendous. All of these incredible accomplishments and achievements have led you to something that I'm assuming is why or where you ended up participating in the U.S. Preventive Task Force. That's something that's not easy to become a part of, I understand. It's a, it's a pretty complex uh, vetting process. And I guess the first question, though, is uh, what made you decide or to apply and participate in the U.S. Preventive Task Force? Yeah. The task force was first convened by the U.S. Public Health Service in 1984. So we're coming up on our 40th anniversary. And 
And the task force from the very founding legislation was constructed to be a group of 16 volunteers who are primary care clinicians, but have extra expertise in how to interpret studies and evidence-based medicine to create a guide for clinical preventive service use. All 16 members are volunteers and were appointed by Health and Human Services. And the term is four years, but there's a possibility, and this happened to me, which was really nice, uh, that you might be selected to be in the leadership. And in that situation, then you have two years as a vice chair, one year as a chair. And as you mentioned in your kind introduction, I'm immediate past chair right now. I actually never thought about being on the task force. Anybody in the country can nominate anyone to be on the task force. And nominations are reviewed and taken very seriously. So my nomination actually came from Dr. Judy Fradkin, who at the time, she's now retired, but she was a real pathbreaker for women in medicine and at NIH. And I didn't even know she had nominated me until the the dean's office at UCLA asked for my CD uh, to be sent to ARC. And so once I knew I was nominated, I, I studied and looked at the task force a lot more and realized what a wonderful fit it would be for me because it's right at that intersection of scientific evidence that informs policy. And, you know, it's a space where I really love to think, and it's a space where I think I have the potential to influence. So so for the, the women in academic medicine and science who are listening to this podcast, I, I want to reflect on one thing. And that's that, you know, I think academic medicine is still quite a traditional place. And it is a very challenging place for a lot of women to advance their careers. And, and when you talk to women in academic medicine, oftentimes it's parts of the federal government that we interact with for our funding or other agencies that really promote our careers. So, you know, I think in the federal government, there is much more of a culture of advancing women. And, and I'm somebody who really benefited from that. And, uh, you know, you mentioned I'm a mother and as a mother with young kids and, you know, balancing my personal and professional life, I didn't have a lot of geographic mobility. So, you know, I think if it wasn't for people like Dr. Fradkin being a quiet advocate for me when I didn't even know she was doing it, I would have never ended up on the preventive services task force for seven years. And I, you know, I have to say it's probably been professionally one of the most important seven years of my career. What you've just said is so such a valuable piece of reflection for all of us to hear as women in an academic world and probably other worlds as well. What you just followed up with, the it was one of the most impactful time of your um, career these seven years. What was it that was so made it so impactful? So the task force is charged with making evidence-based prevention recommendations for people from birth to death in the U.S. And the mission is really to improve the health and reduce mortality 
for all persons in our nation. And so it has a very global mandate. And, you know, the task force really, until 2010, kind of toiled away and made these recommendations. And they were four primary care clinicians and not too many other stakeholders paid attention to them until the Affordable Care Act happened. And when the Affordable Care Act happened, there was um, legislation that was passed by Congress that said that all grade A and grade B recommendations, which are two highest grades, meaning that we have the highest certainty of um, at least a moderate net benefit from the preventive service, that all of those should be provided to people in the nation with private health insurance at no cost sharing. So no out-of-pocket costs to access those services. Well, as you could well imagine, now there are a whole bunch of people who care a lot about the task force recommendations. Since 2010, the task force has really been kind of had a light shined on it and a lot more attention. But at the same time, we've really stayed wedded to our basic principles. So these recommendations are for the primary care setting or referred from primary care clinicians. And they're only for people with no signs or symptoms uh, or unrecognized signs or symptoms of a disease. And, you know, our recommendations really fall into three big categories. One is preventive screening. And when we think about that, it's screening for cancers, for heart disease, you know, for other serious conditions such as autism in children. A second category is about brief behavioral interventions in primary care. You know, one that comes to mind, there are pretty effective brief interventions in primary care to help people reduce their alcohol intake. And so, you know, the task force looks at that evidence and we create a recommendation that helps guide clinicians into how best to do that. And then the third category are medicines to prevent disease. So this is where the statins to reduce heart attacks and strokes come in. There also are preventive medicines for fractures and for cancer in some situations. And so that's really our third bucket. Well, this is, uh, of course, music to my ears uh, to be able to have such an incredibly talented group of people focusing on primary prevention, which is what you're talking about, right? There's an incredible vetting process that occurs so that there is no bias, right? That that these individuals are, you know, looking at the evidence and, and, and assessing it and making best judgment decisions. People on the task force represent all of the primary care disciplines. So we have nurses, psychologists, pediatricians, family practice docs, internal medicine doctors, geriatricians, OBGYNs on the task force. So with 16, you can imagine we have there, we always want balance across all of those perspectives. So that's one of the criteria. The second is we try very hard to represent the whole United States. And any university at any given time typically only has one task force member. So, you know, it's kind of a spread the wealth sort of strategy or spread the expertise. And then one of the biggest considerations has to do with conflict of interest. 
So there's very, very careful vetting around perceived or actual financial conflict of interest, intellectual conflict of interest, and and these things are all taken into consideration. I think there's a, a very good process in place for making sure that the task force members really focus on benefit or net benefit to patients when we make and, and we grade our recommendations. So we don't consider cost. And very early on, a decision was made by the task force to be completely agnostic about cost and to really just focus on the strength of the evidence. And because of that vetting process, I think that the task force recommendations are viewed as they should be as a very trustworthy source of information because none of us have big secondary gain for what the grade is or for what we don't grade. So, you know, when we find insufficient evidence, we give an eye to a, to a statement. This means that there's not evidence to say someone should do a test or to not do a test. And, you know, that's very different than a lot of the other guideline creating entities in our country where they might fall back on using expert opinion when there's not evidence. The task force never uses expert opinion. If there's not evidence, we say there's not evidence, and then we make a really vigorous call for new research to conduct the studies that are going to close that evidence gap so that we can get to a recommendation. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. So when you say you have enough evidence, what does that mean? Right. So so we have a bunch of different grades and our grading of the evidence goes along two dimensions. We assess the certainty that the estimates of benefits and harm are right. So if you only have one study on a topic, you don't have a lot of certainty, right? If you have five or six studies done in different populations, and they all point to the same amount of benefit, that gives us a lot of certainty. So, you know, the task force is always looking at the number of studies, the quality of those studies, and what the picture looks like when you pull them together to make a certainty judgment. And then the second dimension is really the magnitude of the benefit, and so, you know, if the magnitude of the benefit is very high, then a recommendation is likely to be an A. And if it's moderate, it's very likely to be a B. Now, once in a while, you'll have something that has a small benefit on a population level, but that small benefit might be a little bit greater for certain groups of people. Those are where we get the C recommendations. And so the C recommendations acknowledge that there is a small benefit, but that you should have a shared decision-making conversation with your doctor. And then the zero or negative are the D recommendations. So, so it's really this combination of certainty, which we always grade as high, moderate, or low, and then magnitude of net benefit, which we grade as substantial, moderate, small, or zero to negative. So far, we've got a comprehensive overview 
of the task force. And we have heard Carol's commitment to patient care and her leadership role in building the evidence base for preventive care. If you're curious to learn more about what types of research the task force prioritizes and why, I highly recommend tuning in for next week's part two of this episode to dive even deeper into this topic. Thanks again for joining us at the Live Well podcast, everyone. We will talk to you next week. We are so glad you joined us today in this conversation. To learn more about today's guests and to explore the entire podcast archive, visit our website at healthy.ucla.edu and find the podcast page under the media tab. If you enjoyed this episode, the best way to support the show is to subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And if you can leave a review or share on social media, even better. If you have any guest suggestions, visit our website for the submission form or email us livewell at ucla.edu or direct message us on Instagram at healthyucla. Visit the show notes on our website or on whatever platform you're currently listening to and check out organizations, ideas, or people mentioned in this episode. Thanks for being on this journey with us. This episode has been brought to you by the Semmel Healthy Campus Initiative Center at UCLA. UCLA.